Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We are off for the holidays, but in advance, we made you a fantastic show today. Bill Keller, the founder of The Marshall Project, stops by to talk to us about his book, What's Prison For? But first, we talk to the former supermodel and author Paulina Poroskova about her book, No Filter, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful. Welcome to Fast Politics, Paulina Poroskova. Well, hi there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I got to have you on because it's like not that often that you get to have on a friend, you know, someone you really are friends with. So... I'm very thrilled. I know. I don't think I've been interviewed by a friend yet. Hello, friend. <laughs> Hello. So I knew that you were going to write a book, but I knew that you were like very back and forth on it. So tell us what sort of pushed you over the edge to do it. Well, actually, you know, what Well, what pushed me over the edge was the, the fact that Maria Shriver called me and said, <laughs> hey, would you write me a book? And she said, I followed you on Instagram. That's why she called. And I want you to write me a book like you write your Instagram. So that to me was like, oh, well, I'm doing that every day for free anyway. So it would be a chance for me to like delve a lot deeper and, you know, get my thoughts out a little clearer. And so that's sort of, you know, it was just like an offer I couldn't refuse. It was perfect. What was a little less perfect was that she gave me three months in which to write it. <laughs> and now you as a writer, you know, three months, right? It's not three a lot of time. Months. No. Yeah. 
it's such a hard thing. How did you sort of decide what to put in there, what not to put in there? How'd you get going? It's just funny because I'm I'm talking to somebody who's written a book about her life too. And I've read your books and I love them. <laughs> oh, well, the feeling's mutual. You're so funny and so bright and you revealed a lot. Yeah. So I wasn't editing myself on the page. I just wrote everything that was like inside me, you know, that had been taking up space for the last two years. And I just poured it all out because I figured, well, I can always go back and edit it after, right? I can cut out things that shouldn't be out in the world. And I ended up cutting very little actually, because I feel like when I was writing it, I really concentrated on writing about myself. This is like my experiences, the way I perceived things. I wasn't giving away other people's secrets. So you know, I didn't feel like I was in dangerous territory necessarily because it wasn't about other people. It's not right. like a tell all. Oh, and when I met such and such and they said, you know, this and this. No, but part of these books is that you have to decide how much of your interactions with other people you tell. Well, my husband was my entire life from the time I was 19. So it's not like I could omit him because then yeah, I would yeah, have yeah. a very short book. <laughs> I was just looking at the Amazon reviews and someone said, came for Ocasek, stayed for Poliskovich. <laughs> Well, that's really sweet. I thought that was a great kind of line there of just like how how you're magnetic. But I mean, when you finished it, were you just like kind of terrified or were you just like ready or I mean, just talk to me about that. Oh, God. Well, you know, you know, the process of writing a book and then you finish the book and then you double guess everything mm -hmm. you've ever written and then you would like to go back over it. But guess what? Because of this super <laughs> short time limit, I really didn't have a chance. So it just kind of had to, you know, it just had to go out there the, the way it was. So in a way, it was kind of good because I couldn't like bellyache about how I was going to feel about this coming out and this coming out. And I thought, you know what? I had been perfectly honest in, in my writing. And so I don't have to be ashamed of me. I don't have to be ashamed of the way I feel. I mean, maybe I can sometimes be a little ashamed of uh, not getting a phrase right or, you know, doing a stupid metaphor. Yeah. But hey, <laughs> you know, it was it was going to be what it was because I knew I was, you know, I was telling my truth. And, and, and I think when you do tell the truth, how is that wrong? It was so incredibly tragic when Rick died. Did this help you process the grief? Well, here's the thing. I don't really think that one ever processes grief. I think grief sticks with you for life. I don't think there is such a thing as processing grief. I think there's just living with grief. What it did do, though, oddly enough, was allow me to process a bit of my anger at his betrayal at the end, you know, with the will. And the way that happened was not by putting that down on paper and talking about how miserable I had been and, you know, how screwed up everything was, but going back and writing the chapter about falling in love with him, because then suddenly I was forced to confront how much I loved him and how much he meant to me for such a long time. And whether it was healthy or unhealthy or toxic or not toxic, whatever, I had a lot of love for a really long time with this man. And having to go back to the good memories is what really helped me. Wait, can you explain what sort of the situation with the will? So about two days after he died, uh, we got the wills. Me and my boys got the will in the, in the mail, three envelopes. And I opened it. And on the front of the will, there was sort of like an addendum 
And it just said, I will not provide for my wife, Paulina, because she abandoned me. Mm. And when I first saw this, this is like, we're talking about, you know, he, he just died. I just found him. I was taking care of him and then he died. And then, you know, and I thought, well, this is obviously bullshit because I'm right here. I never abandoned my husband. So this is like some sort of a mistake. And then when, you know, as time went on and I realized it actually wasn't a mistake, well, then I realized it was a lie. And that was a little bit harder to put up with, obviously. You know, what do you do when your husband's last words to you are a blatant lie? And I felt like, you know, of course, you know, the surrounding press, because the will had been written so that it was public knowledge, you know, suddenly I had to defend myself. There was all these people, you know, going on about like, well, how bad was she that he's leaving her nothing? Like she must have been a horrible person. She must oh, be a horrible person. And it completely wrung me out. That was pretty rough, actually. Not to mention the fact that I also had no cash flow. So that was a, you know. Oops. I mean, that is the sort of most transparently angry thing. I mean, you know, it's just it does seem like something someone who is very angry does. Yeah. And I had no idea. I had no idea he was angry. I had no idea he felt that way. I thought we were like friends. You know, I thought we just made up and and, you know, we were cohabiting peacefully. He knew all about this boyfriend that I had met. He, you know, like everything was out in the open. I had no idea. And you had also been with him for at that point, how many years? 35 years. Jesus Christ. That's a long time. Yeah, my whole life, really. And I ask this as someone who myself got married very young. Are you glad that you got married young or do you wish that you hadn't? Oh, gosh, Molly, that's a hard question. I'm allowed to ask it because, you know, I got married when I was 23. So I know we both got married at 23, actually. Yeah. You know, I because I don't know what my life would have been if I had gotten married later. Right. I don't feel like I can really answer that question. Yeah. Now, with hindsight, I think. But you know what? I had 25 years of a really great marriage of where I was really happy and I felt loved and I felt safe. So yeah, it was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. It was worth the heartbreak at the end because I came out stronger than ever from it. I also think you have these great kids. <laughs> I do. That's sort of the most meaningful metric. Tell me what you, I mean, one of the things I think you've done really well is you write about aging and what that is about. Will you talk to us a little bit about that? It's something that we women are really, I mean, everyone is confronted with it, but women are confronted with it on a whole other level. Yeah, we do, because we do turn invisible at a certain age. I don't know that it's set in stone, but it's somewhere in your 40s. Uh, some women say 30s even, which kind of, it's flabbergasting to me. But, you know, I didn't necessarily realize this. It, you know, I was my, my marriage, by, by the time I was 50, my marriage was tanking and I felt really invisible to my husband. And then I realized I felt invisible in the rest of the world as well. Cause I had like, I had no career. I had, you know, nothing going. I mean, I think you met me around then. And, you know, I was a bit of a mess. Well, you had a career, but I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I think like everyone has that sort of, yeah, go on. So, yeah. Yeah. And I would ask, 
all my girlfriends, because I thought this was particular to me, having been a model and having been visible my whole life, I thought I'm taking this harder than most women, or maybe I'm the only one, maybe I'm so freaking narcissistic and vain that I can't get my head out of my ass. And I just, you know, like, this is my problem, and I'm going to have to overcome it. And then I spoke to all my girlfriends. And I said, do you ever feel invisible? And they said, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I went, oh, wait, so this is not just me. This is all of us. This goes for all of us. And then I started looking things up and I started looking for women our age and representation of women our age. And, you know, in the, the really noticing the media and, and magazines and TV and, and all of the you know, places that represent women publicly. And I thought, there are not a lot of 50-ish looking women, are there? I mean, everybody sort of looks a vague 39. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And I really sort of enjoy, I really enjoy my age. I think I'm, I really do think that I'm the best that I've ever been. I mean, because some really hard lessons, but I do feel like I'm just so much better on the inside and the outside, fine. It's maybe not as soci, you know, sociologically acceptable as beautiful, but I think it's beautiful. I find it beautiful in other women. Right. And so I feel like, you know, ladies, we need to like gang up here and show them that we're not supposed to change ourselves to to smooth out societal norms of what, who we're supposed to look like or what we're supposed to look like, but rather change their perspective. Right. We should claim who we are and go, you know what? I am beautiful. It might be a different kind of a beauty than what you're used to, but keep looking. You'll see it. Right. If you just keep looking, you'll see it. Don't you feel like there's been some movement towards less ageism? Not much, Molly. Not Okay. Tell me. Again, I do think that some of our biggest power player women are in their 50s. Yeah. But again, they don't really look above 40. Right. Right. That's That's a good point. You know, that, and that's, that's the problem is like, yeah, you can be 50, you can be 60, you can be 70, but you can't look it. Right. right, right. Aging gracefully is when you don't age. Right. Right. I have accidentally walked into this as my purpose of being like, I'm going to try to embrace who I am and what I look like and see, see if I can change people's minds about, yeah, you know what? You still look great. And you don't have to look 20 to look great. Like you can be a great looking older woman. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Tell me what else, what is sort of next for you? That is such a good question. I have like zero <laughs> idea. So I just literally just fell off the book tour, right? It's like right. winding down to Christmas and I'm doing my last book signing next week. And like, you're like one of my like last podcasts. And then next year, literally it's like, tumbleweed. <laughs> there, is, there is nothing on my schedule. There's nothing lined up. I was working for a little while on this, trying to put together this reality show with a friend of mine who's a producer who who um, was working on Beyond the Edge with me, the, the jungle show where I nearly killed myself. Right. And he wanted to do a show about the second coming of age of the one of a 50-year-old woman. And I thought it was such a great idea and we pitched it and the response was, yeah, you know what? It's not really our demographic. <laughs> so I guess we don't have a demographic, Molly. No demographic for older women. Oh, Jesus. Apparently older women don't want to watch themselves. <laughs> Entirely true, right? Yeah. I mean, that seems kind of nuts. 
but very interesting. Thank you so much, Paulina. Thanks for coming on the podcast. You're the best. You know, I always love to talk to you. And next year, let's hang out. Yes. Yes, yes, I would love it. Yes. Hey, guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, 
and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Bill Keller is the founder of The Marshall Project and the author of What's Prison For? Welcome to Fast Politics, Bill Keller. Thank you. Very excited to have you. This is like a topic that Jesse and I are pretty obsessed with. And so I'm so excited that you, first of all, you're founding editor of The Marshall Project, which can you tell our listeners a little bit about The Marshall Project in case they haven't heard of it? Sure. It was started by a guy named Neil Barsky, who was a reporter for the actually for The Wall Street Journal, who covered Donald Trump's real estate dealings, among other things. And then he went into the hedge fund game, got very rich, and decided he wanted to give some back. He grew up in a civil rights activist family and decided he wanted to create an online news organization that would focus on the criminal justice system. This was a preposterous idea in 2014 (laughs) when newsrooms were dying right and left and firing people, but he pulled it off. Marshall Project has now got, I think, 40 people working for it, you know, counting the people who do fundraising, but also the 
reporters and editors and guys who do magic with data. We've won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes and various other awards. We do a daily a daily news roundup that sort of gives, gives you a shortcut to what's going on in the world of criminal justice. So one of the things you did was you were the editor of The New York Times and you went to the Marshall Project, which must have really helped them. I mean, I'm sure you're too modest to say this, but it certainly helped them get on the radar. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I mean, whether whether it should have or not, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I did bring... A, a, a reputation that was helpful with fundraising and probably somewhat helpful with hiring. There aren't a lot of people working at the New York Times or the Washington Post who want to give up that security to go with a new startup. So we didn't have the pick of the litter, but we probably had, it probably helped that, that I was the founding editor. So now the book you've written is for, it's called What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration. So explain to us a little bit about how you sort of got to this and a little bit about what the central thesis of the book is. Well, after about five years working with all those reporters and editors at the Marshall Project, I retired as the editor-in-chief. I thought I'd learned some lessons from those five years that I'd like to share, offer up humbly for public approval. I decided to focus on prisons. I mean, there are lots of parts of the criminal justice system that the Marshall Project covers, including courts and policing, a lot of policing. And policing and courts have gotten an incredible amount of attention over the last decade or so, as they should have. Prisons are different. They're not the most transparent. They're probably the least transparent arms of the domestic government that we have. I think there's a sort of reluctance to want to, people don't necessarily want to know that much about prisons. That's where you put your problems behind walls and then you don't deal with them. So I thought I would try to write essentially a primer on prisons and the role they play in America and have played historically, provide some context, the kind of endless tension between the professed belief in second chances and redemption on the one hand, and on the other hand, the sort of punitive Puritan streak in America. What did you find as you were working on this? What surprised you? I think the thing that struck me most was, yes, prisons are scary and exhausting. They grind people down. They leave them stigmatized and often with no skills. And I don't want to sound Pollyannish about this, but there's ample evidence that it doesn't have to be that way. The heart of the book is really focused on people who are trying to prepare prisoners for life after prison, to give them an education, to give them behavioral therapy, to teach them how to avoid anger. And then some of the more ambitious efforts or experiments where prisons or parts of prisons have adopted lessons from Europe and how, how they do prisons, which is much more enlightened and successful, I think, than ours, both in terms of being humane and in terms of assuring public safety. There has been a weird bipartisan, it's weird because it's bipartisan, and that is so deeply unusual in America, push to reform criminal justice. Is that real? I mean, do you feel like the Koch brothers are committed to reforming criminal justice? And if so, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, I'm happy to. Back in 2015, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker focused on the the right-wing campaign for criminal justice reform. There is a conservative logic to reforming the criminal justice system. The the libertarians like the Koch brothers tend to see prisons and courts and 
police as another arm of overbearing government, overtaxing government. A lot of evangelicals have taken up the sort of effort to reform conditions in prisons and access to them, to the outside, connections to the outside. And there, are, you have some fiscal conservatives who, who just think that it's the $80 billion a year we spend locking people up is not worth that much money. So the, their motives are different than progressive advocates of criminal justice reform. But I think up to a point, there, there is some room for common ground. Unfortunately, that movement sort of hit a public high watermark in 2018 with the passage of the First Step Act, which was a very modest reform, made it somewhat easier for prisoners to earn time off their sentences by enrolling in education courses or other sort of betterment programs. It somewhat lessened the ridiculous over-sentencing for crack cocaine as compared to powder cocaine. It was a piece of legislation that has been a little oversold. It dealt with the federal prison system, which is really only about 10% of the people who are incarcerated. But that said, it passed the Senate 87 to 12. Can you imagine anything passing the Senate by a margin like that? And Trump signed it and tried to take credit for it. And and I I know that Jared Kushner was, who has a personal interest in criminal justice reform because his father did time in New Jersey. He, He was involved in drafting and negotiating the terms of that piece of legislation. That was sort of the high watermark. And since then, the the general paralysis that afflicts everything in Washington these days seems to have kicked into criminal justice reform, at least. I mean, this is hard to imagine, but in the 2016 campaigns for the Republican presidential nomination, there were four Republican contenders who embraced this so-called right-on-crime conservative criminal justice reform measures. One of them was Ted Cruz, of all people. Those people have kind of gone mute in the this, this sort of Trump-era you know, absence of bipartisanship. Now, you know, whether it's just kind of gone silent for a while, I mean, there are some reasons to... Somebody reviewing this book described me as unexpectedly optimistic, and I slightly recoil from, from that because it sounds naive. But I'd say there's reason for hope in spite of the gridlock in Washington. A, a lot of states are doing at least incremental reforms on their own. That's they're, they're responsible for the largest portion of the prison population. We're hearing more reports from prisoners themselves. There's actually a, a new nonprofit called the Prison Journalism Project that conducts classes in journalistic skills and values inside prisons and then helps prisoners get journalism published outside. So there's a little more transparency creeping into the prison world. For example, during the pandemic, a number of prisoners managed to write essentially exposés of how badly prisons handled the pandemic. This week, we've got a, a prison strike across Alabama which in earlier days probably would have been suppressed. Nobody would have known about it, but a bunch of prisoners managed to get word out, and and now it's a big story. I'm a journalist, so I believe in the curative powers of journalism, but I think that may be a, a small indication of a reason for hope. Thank you so much, Bill. This was so interesting. Well, thank you. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. 
Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.